0: Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We are back with our contestant, Steve, from Londonshire. Hello, Steve. Uh, hello. The final question for one million pounds, that's a lot of money, Steve, is this. Is Mrs. Campbell from across the road having an affair with the milkman? Yes? No? Yes and no? Or all of the above? Oh, bloody hell, I should know that. That's yes, no, yes and no, or all of the above. Right, well, I want to rule out option C, yes and no, because it violates the logical principle of non-contradiction, as stated by Aristotle, who said that contradictory propositions cannot be simultaneously true. And unless I'm horribly mistaken, I think we can also ignore D, all of the above on that same basis. That's a compelling argument, Steve, and that leaves you with yes or no. Oh, is Mrs. Campbell shagging the milkman? I want to say, yeah. I mean, my missus thinks so for starters, and my mate Greg says he saw the milkman climbing out of Mrs. Campbell's bedroom window the other evening. But on the other hand, your wife's a gossip and Greg's a compulsive liar, so maybe not, who's to say? On the other other hand, just this morning I was at the supermarket and with my own eyes I seen Mrs Campbell buying 15 cartons of cereal. Thought to myself, is well odd, what with Mrs Campbell being diabetic and everything. So, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. Is that your final answer? Yeah, go on then. One million pounds. There's a lot riding on this, Steve. Tell us how you're feeling. Tell you what, mate, I'm shitting myself. Because if you look at this scenario from an epistemological standpoint... I don't really know if I got the right answer, so anything could happen. It's like I'm in a state of quantum uncertainty, know what I mean? Until you open that envelope, I'm suspended between future outcomes. I mean, what happens next is the difference between me going home rich or the camera lingering on my wife's expression of utter contempt. So, not going to lie, mate, it's a little nerve-wracking. So, put me out of my misery, open the envelope and collapse the wave function, will you? You don't realize it, but every moment of your life is just like Steve's. With every action, we are placing a bet on future outcomes. The reason we don't usually feel like Steve is because for most of our bets, we know the answer. We pick chocolate over turnips because we know it will satisfy us more. We give Amazon our credit card details because we know they won't just steal our money. We know this chair won't disappear from under us, so we sit without realizing that we're betting that it won't. Most of our lives are made up of safe bets. What makes them feel safe, so safe we don't even realize we're placing them, is our certainty. That feeling of certainty holds our world together. But take a closer look at these certainties and we quickly see that most of them stand on shaky ground. This is the paradox of certainty, that on the one hand we need it so that unlike Steve, we're not crushed by a devastating awareness of how precarious our immediate future is. But on the other hand, our certainties are often unreliable and can lead us to catastrophic error. One of our responsibilities as humans is to investigate the foundations of what we think we know. And should we find, as the skeptic says, that we can know nothing at all? We have to devise ways of navigating uncertainty in a world where, perhaps, there are no safe bets. Hello, human! Welcome to Wise Hypocrites Guide to Everything, a podcast about the 10 questions of human existence. I'm Patrick Daniel, a banking lawyer who quit his career to study philosophy and, as a result, unwisely believes himself wise. you know, you're probably wrong. Yeah, and I'm not talking about whatever it is you're thinking about right now. I mean about everything. (laughs) And look, don't worry, I'm not calling you a dummy. Although, let's face it, statistically speaking. No, I'm talking about us as humans more generally. You know, we're generally very confident that our beliefs, our opinions, our pictures of the world somewhat reflect reality. But one thing that we're going to see in this episode is that this confidence is not only unwarranted, But potentially dangerous. So, epistemology, let's do it. This is the third episode of this podcast dedicated to the 10 questions of human existence. These are the questions that define our lives and that have shaped the course of humanity since, well, pretty much the beginning of everything. Literally every single moment and every single aspect of your life is about you, knowingly or unknowingly, looking for answers to one or more of these questions. If you want a full primer, do go and check out episode 0 of this podcast, where I sort of lay out the concept in a bit more detail. But before we continue, I'd also urge you, if you have the time and the inclination and blah blah blah, go and check out the previous episodes of this podcast on the questions Who am I and what is real? As I've said before, you don't actually have to do this because every episode is designed to stand alone. So, you know, if you don't want to do it, you're good. But the ideas that we explore here do build upon one another. There's this kind of layering effect where concepts that I've discussed in previous episodes will pop up again in a new context, giving you a fresh angle. And this repetition, this layering of different perspectives... Gives you that kind of familiarity, that um, richness of understanding from the different angles. And that's what makes these concepts really stick. Case in point. In the last episode, I talked about how in order to be in the world, you kind of have to know about the world. You can't do something useful without knowing a little more about your context. The reason I use the word know, and the reason why conceptually it's doing most of the heavy lifting here, is this. If I'm hungry, it's not enough that there are apples on a nearby tree or there's pizza in the fridge or something else nearby that I could use to solve that problem. I have to know it. Our sort of general understanding is that to know something is quite a bit different from merely believing it. First of all, it just feels different to know something, doesn't it? Knowledge feels more certain than belief. It's uh, like it has a higher resolution, a, a solidity that opinions lack second, you can pretty much believe anything you want. You can uh, believe that the earth is flat. You can believe that vaccines give you autism. You can believe that the moon is made out of cat litter. The fact is that for a belief to be knowledge, it has to satisfy some additional criteria. It's got to tick some extra boxes. So that's the kind of thing we're going to talk about on this episode. What distinguishes knowledge from belief? Uh, What is certainty? How does it feel? How do we know anything? But the broader theme that I really want you to keep in mind and that I think is very important to keep this all anchored to is the crucial role that knowledge plays in our lives. That's what I want to get to the bottom of, why knowledge really matters, because I feel we don't appreciate this enough. We use the term knowledge very carelessly. We just throw it around like it doesn't mean much. We say we know things with a kind of reckless abandon that shows that we haven't really considered how rare knowledge is and how precious. So let's start with just a couple of bullet points on why the concept of knowledge really, really matters. Here's three reasons. First reason. The difference between believing and knowing matters. Our mind constructs a picture of the world. That's something we saw in the last episode. Everything that you experience, it's not unfiltered reality. It's your own reconstruction of reality. And that picture is everything to you. It's what you live, it's what you breathe, it's everything that you react to. Now, your beliefs are the building blocks of that picture. It's what that picture is made of. So naturally, if those beliefs are horseshit... Your whole worldview isn't sustainable. You know, it's just going to be a shaky and coherent mess. It won't make sense. And of course, there's a real cost to that, because if your worldview doesn't make sense, then your actions aren't going to be appropriately calibrated to your context. You know, you're not going to achieve the results that you want, because your actions are going to be targeted at a worldview that doesn't uh, match reality. Plus, there's the other minor inconvenience that, well, nobody likes these people. I realize this doesn't sound like the most serious point, but, I mean, consider this. The kind of people whose worldview is all off-kilter, they're always having to fend off uh, facts and views that don't align with that worldview, because these facts and uh, ideas and beliefs are threats, are threats to something that is already inherently unstable. And so they're the kinds of people who are always yelling, fake news, or "Mm, that's problematic, whenever they hear something they don't don't like who likes these people it's, it's it's not a good way to be honestly it's not a good way to uh, communicate in the world and of course there's also the other not inconsiderable fact that uh, people tend to act on their beliefs right so if you're the kind of person who thinks that i don't know Elon Musk is pissing in the water supply you might be tempted to go grab your pitchfork and do something about it we we know this bad beliefs reliably lead to bad actions now on the other hand If you've done your work and you've been a good citizen and your beliefs are verified and you know they're true, well, then your picture of the world rests on strong foundations because its building blocks are solid. And that's exactly the kind of grounding we need if we're going to engage in communication and sense-making with other people, which is kind of what democracies are based on. And we like democracies, most of us at least. Anyway, second reason. Confusing belief and knowledge threatens the social fabric. Now, I know that sounds cringe. All right, boomer, threatening the social fabric. I know what it sounds like. Every time you talk about the social fabric and, oh, we need to protect the status quo, you always sound a bit like an elderly Victorian gentleman, slightly offended that women are asking for the right to vote. But look, here's what I'm trying to say. The social fabric is based on a kind of shared reality, right? On, a, on a, a social understanding that certain things work a certain way. And it only works that way because we all believe it. Now, here's where I take it back to knowledge. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you're generally far too busy to go and fact check everything you hear, right? So, when you hear someone say that they know something whether that person's an academic or a reporter or just some dude on the internet, ideally, you want to be able to trust that they're not just saying that thing, this is not just something they believe, but that it's actually true. That you can take this information and you can build it into your own picture of the world without compromising its structural integrity. That you can take this information and you can pass it on to other people without risking your reputation. Basically, that this thing is true. And this is an unspoken secret. The words I know are a powerful formula because they transform beliefs into facts. And that's why when you ask someone, are you sure? The answer really matters. Because that question reminds that person that they're giving their personal guarantee that that information is verified. It's a little like currency. Look at it this way. The central bank issues banknotes. And banknotes are inherently worthless, right? I mean, it's paper. But the bank's guarantee means that this worthless paper can be exchanged for valuable goods. And knowledge is like that. Every time you say, I know, you're like that bank, guaranteeing that this information can be exchanged with no further verification required. Except, what happens with currency when there's too much of it? Inflation. And similarly, in an age in which everyone can spread information to millions of people, we have to be far more careful with giving this guarantee. Because if we keep applying this magic I know formula to things that don't deserve it, soon people start to lose trust in the power of I know, and faith in the whole system of knowledge collapses. In short, if the I know formula is like currency, then our reckless use of it is leading to its devaluation. Third reason, knowledge is what connects us to reality. Think of it this way. On the inside, there's you, your consciousness, your subjective experience, and yada, yada, yada. On the outside, there's the world, you know, other people, pencils, rabbits, sandwiches, everything else. Knowledge is the connector between you and all those other things. It's, um... I don't even know why I'm saying this. This is just what I think of when I consider this concept. I, I keep visualizing the Eurostar, right? That's the the train that connects Paris and London and that goes under the English Channel and connects them. Uh, those two things are isolated, right? I mean, London is literally on an island and island is you know, where the word isolated comes from. Uh, that's neither here nor there. It's a terrible analogy and it makes no sense whatsoever. But the point is this. That knowledge is something we have or something we do perhaps that puts our mind in some kind of a relationship with reality. It connects them. It's the nature of that relationship that marks the difference between merely believing something and actually knowing it. Here's a few things I believe. I believe I have two hands. I believe the earth is round. I believe objects aren't real, that nothing existed before consciousness, and that my cat Golder can access hidden dimensions. Now, some of these beliefs may be bullshit. But some of them may be true. The difference matters. A belief that is not true is just a belief, and it can never be anything more than a belief. If I tell you I believe the Queen is a lizard, that tells you something about me, but it tells you nothing about the world, I hope. For a belief to be knowledge, it has to tell you something about the world. It has to be true. You can't know something that is false, right? You can't know that Rome is the capital of France. You can just believe it, mistakenly. But Truth alone isn't enough for knowledge. It might be a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient one. And here's why. I believe that right now you are wearing underwear. Now that might be true. I'd say it's probably true. Even if it is true, for all I know, you could be as naked as a plucked chicken. See, the reason I believe you're wearing undies isn't because you actually are wearing undies but because it's statistically probable that you're wearing undies. Because, you know, people, unless they're in the shower or they're making some bizarre statement, they usually wear undies. So my belief doesn't depend on any facts about whether or not you actually are wearing undies, because you could take them off right now, and I'd still believe you were wearing them. So I don't know you're wearing undies. I just believe it, and happen to be right. Now, to see the difference, take my undies, which, by the way, you can find at the merch store for $49 a piece. Absolute bargain. The reason I believe I'm wearing undies is not because I usually wear undies or I'm statistically likely to be wearing undies. No, I believe I'm wearing undies because I am wearing undies right now. Promise. If I weren't wearing undies, I wouldn't believe I was wearing undies. And that's why we say I know I'm wearing undies, because... To know something is to believe it is true because it is true. I'm going to repeat that because it's kind of first uh, central and it's my dictum de jour. To know something is to believe it is true because it is true. Now... Big caveat here. This is not a philosophical definition. In fact, I know many philosophers who will tear their hair out, those who have hair, if they heard me saying something like this. This is not a philosophical definition. I mean, for starters, it's totally circular, right? And how would you even ascertain how that chain of causation would work? I mean, it's a total shit show. But just a quick reminder here to say that the purpose of this episode isn't to find a perfect philosophical definition of knowledge, which, by the way, greater minds than ours have failed to do for 25 centuries, No, the aim of this episode is to explore the questions surrounding the role of knowledge in our lives. And so we need some kind of definition to have an idea of what it is we're talking about. So a loose definition. In fact, let's say it this way. For the purposes of this conversation, not as a precise definition, uh, just as a general rule of thumb, uh, a general principle that we can all point to, so we're on the same page, to know something is to believe it is true... Because it is true. So again, you see, it's this connection that is the key ingredient here, this uh, link between our belief and the truth. And that's what makes our belief knowledge. But then, of course, the obvious question is how do we know that that connection is solid? How do we know that the thing we believe is true actually is true? Let me ask you this, how much of what you believe do you only believe because someone else told you? For instance, you know your date of birth, right? But how do you know? Well, I'd venture that you know because someone else told you that that's when you were born. Your parents, your ID, your birth certificate, and so on. And the thing is, you trust those sources, You trust that your parents aren't deceiving you, or that they remember the date correctly, or that the doctors and the government workers who compiled your ID didn't screw up. When you say that you know your date of birth, what you're really saying is that you trust that your sources for that information are reliable. You know because you trust that they know. Think about that for a second. Because this is your own birthday we're talking about imagine how many other things it applies to. All of history, for starters. It's not like you were there for it, right? So, I mean, how do you know that Hannibal invaded Rome, or that Napoleon lost at Waterloo, or anything else in history? Someone had to tell you. Authors, teachers, documentarians, podcasters, they told you. And so now you say you know. And science? What, you think you discovered the Earth is round all by yourself? or that donkeys are made of electrons, or whatever. No, someone else said so, and so now you know. And, of course, the news, right? Well, that's an obvious one. I mean, how do you ever know about the murder over here, or the war over there, or the funny story with the dog, if not because a paper, a reporter, or just someone on Twitter said so? This is the point. Our whole system of knowledge is based on trust. And that's true, even if you're the kind of person who says, well, not me, I fact-check everything, I look at the evidence. (laughs) Newsflash, my friend, Um, what counts as evidence, a science paper, a history book, a photograph, a reporter on the scene, is mostly just someone else saying so. We're putting a lot of trust in this someone else. Are you so sure that you know something is true just because someone else said so? To which, obviously, you can respond, well, it's not just somebody is saying so, it's who is saying so that matters. You just have to trust the right people. For instance, this historian teaches at Yale, or that journalist works for the BBC, or this expert is uh, from the WHO, so I'm good, right? That's fair enough. You know, certain sources do seem to be more reliable than others. But let me ask you this. How do you know that Yale and the BBC and the WHO are trustworthy? How do you know which of these institutions and which of those experts is genuinely reliable? I'd say that we only know that because our whole information ecosystem tells us that we can trust Yale and the BBC, etc. But hold on a minute. Isn't that the same information ecosystem that produces these institutions and sources and experts in the first place? You see the problem? It's all a little incestuous, isn't it? It's a bit like that classic fallacy involving the Bible. You'll ask someone, well, why do you believe in the Bible? And they'll say, because it's the word of God. At which point you'll say, who says it's the word of God? The Bible. If this all sounds eerily similar to what a conspiracy nut might say... It's because it is. The uncomfortable truth about conspiracy theories, and part of why they're so successful, is they have a point. Conspiracy theories usually start off by asking some very good questions. Uh, How can you trust information you haven't verified? What if your sources are wrong? What if they're lying to you? Of course, where the conspiracy people take these questions is often very, very dumb. But the questions themselves are worth considering. And they all point to this centrality of trust in our quest for knowledge. And trust we must, because as we said before, it's not like you can personally verify everything, right? What would that even look like? you're watching tv and then hold on a second the the news says there was a flood in bangladesh let me get on a plane so i can check personally and Then you're on the plane and you're saying wait a minute how do i even know that this plane isn't held together by guesswork let me get an engineering degree real quick so i can make sure this damn thing actually works oh wait hold on what if this engineering textbook is actually wrong and you get the gist it would just never end so instead we take the shortcut and trust the experts and by the way, this is true even if you're the expert. You know, you might be sitting there listening to this saying, Well, hold on. I actually do have an engineering degree, so blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, you can be the Isaac Newton of your field. And you'd still be relying on centuries of built-up knowledge, of data, of experiments and methods and equipment, all of which have been tested and verified by, you guessed it, someone else. And you're not going to go back and verify it all over again because what are you going to do? You're going to start science from scratch every time you get a great idea? So that's the kind of general idea here that for most of the things we believe we know, all we're doing is trusting that other people have done a good job of verifying it. And this is a huge deal because if knowledge is really all about trust, how do we know who to trust? How do we know which theories have the right scientific backing? Which experts are reputable? Which ones are hacks? How do we know which news is fake news? And if all this weren't confusing enough, lurking in the background is an even deeper question. Because so far, I've just been talking about second-hand knowledge, and knowledge through testimony, right? But what about first-hand knowledge? Because we're all familiar with the story of St. Thomas from the Gospel, you know, they came to tell him that Jesus has risen, and Thomas just scoffed. He's saying, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> what is this, stone of the dead? Show me the evidence, he says. And so he goes and fact-checks. With his own eyes, he sees the resurrected Jesus. With his own hands, he touches the wounds on Jesus' flesh. He does what any good skeptic would do. He checks the evidence. What this story is telling us, it's moral, is that you know, we can be as skeptical as we want, But surely there is one thing that we can all trust that is beyond doubt. Our own senses. If I can see it, if I can touch it, if I can feel it, then I can believe it. Except we know that our senses, the very means through which we access information about the outside world, are fallible. You might recall that in the last episode we talked about the gap between appearance and reality. And how evolution equipped our senses to favor usefulness not accuracy. Our senses, our mind itself, are potentially unreliable sources of information about the external world. So that's really the kicker. If we're basing all of our knowledge on testimony, which, you know, is just another word for hearsay, and our fallible senses, how can we ever be certain about anything? One thing I find interesting about knowledge is its dual nature. Because on the one hand, knowledge has to tell us something true about the world. As we've seen before, you can't know something that isn't true. But on the other hand, knowledge also tells us something about us. Because to say you know something is to say something about your mind. And I don't just mean its contents, not just the information that is contained in your mind. I'm talking about the way it feels to actually know something. That feeling has a name certainty think for a minute how different it feels to say i believe versus i know take this scenario imagine you're on that game show who wants to be a millionaire and you have to bet a large sum of money on the correct answer enough money that losing would hurt and here's the question in what year did julius caesar die 44 bc or 49 bc now you might not have a clue In which case, betting on either of these two answers is going to be a pretty stressful experience. More likely, though, you're somewhere in between. You might not know no, but one of the two answers kind of feels a bit more right. Maybe you've read it somewhere, maybe you heard it somewhere, and you've forgotten, but you have a feeling that that's the right answer. Except you're not 100% sure. Now, in this case, it might be easier to bet because you actually have a stronger feeling about one of the two answers. But let's be honest, until the game show host reads out the correct answer, you're going to be shitting yourself just a little. Now, instead, consider the case where you actually know the answer. And I don't mean half-acid no, I don't mean kinda no, I mean you know know the answer. 44 BC, by the way. Now, if you know the answer, you're not nervous at all. In fact, you probably feel like you could just place your bet, light a cigarette, leave, and not even bother to be around when the guy reads out the correct answer because you just know it's a safe bet. These are two very different feelings. The first feeling lacks the certainty of knowledge. So yeah, you bet on what you think might be the right answer, but until you hear that it is the right answer, from your perspective, this is a Schrodinger's cat situation. The answer is totally uncertain. It's indefinite. To you, it really feels like it could go either way. But then, of course, the host says, congratulations, you just won a million dollars, and suddenly the wave function collapses, and the information that Caesar died in 44 BC becomes as solid as a brick to you. There's nothing uncertain about it. Now, it's knowledge. In order to live functional lives, we kind of need that certainty of knowing. Because if you think about it, our whole life is kind of like a big game of who wants to be a millionaire. With every action, you're betting on the future. You're choosing between a menu of possible options and you're betting that you picked the right choice. Now, of course, for big life decisions, you're going to feel a bit like that contestant. You know, you're going to take your time. You're going to weigh the pros and cons. You're going to call a friend, ask the audience, and the whole thing's going to be a little stressful. And that's fine. But imagine if you had to go through all of that for every little action you did, like brushing your teeth. Now, there's a reason you don't. And it's not because brushing your teeth is low stakes. It's because you know it's low stakes. Let me just clarify that. I have a cat. I've got three cats, actually. Don't judge. One of them, Lenke, is absolutely terrified of everything. She lives in a state of constant paranoia. She is always, always scared, which is kind of funny because she lives in a super safe environment. But, you know, that's just the way she is. Anyway, she is so scared of the unknown that all it takes is to leave an item of clothing on the floor, something unexpected, and she's going to look at it and circle around it as if at any moment she was expecting it to jump up and bite her. So she's approaching it as a potential threat. Now, of course, that situation is low stakes. Nothing bad can happen there. However, because she doesn't know it's low stakes, to her anything can happen, even the small choice of deciding to walk past an item of clothing on the floor seems like a big decision where the pros and cons have to carefully be evaluated because who knows what the hell might happen. Now, when we brush our teeth, we know what's gonna happen. And we know that whatever the potential outcomes, none of these outcomes involves our losing our houses, losing our lives, losing our heads, or those turning purple or anything like that. Brushing your teeth, Feels like a safe bet. Now consider for a second how many safe bets we place every single day. You cross a bridge. You're betting that it's not held together by magic and guesswork, but that the top-level engineering work that went into building the bridge reflects something true about what actually makes bridges work. You go to the supermarket. You're betting that when you give them your money, they're going to give you something in return. You don't even see these as bets. That's how confident you are that they're safe. You're so sure that the beliefs that you're relying on to place these bets track reality. A world where we don't have that certainty, where our picture of reality is entirely based on unverified beliefs and who knows and maybes, is a world where there are no safe bets, where there's no guarantee of anything at all, where you're never sure about how any of your actions is going to play out. Every step you take is like a massive leap of faith. Will the laws of physics hold? Will the ground collapse under my feet? What's going to happen? Who knows? The certainty of knowledge takes that uncertain quicksand and turns it into solid ground that we can build the edifice of our lives on. Our certainties hold our world together. But there's a but. You might remember from a couple of episodes ago when I talked about the Oracle of Delphi and I mentioned that at the entrance of the temple there were certain instructions carved into the marble of the temple itself and you see these immediately upon arrival. In that episode, we focused on the most famous of these Delphic maxims as they're known. Gnothi seauton, know yourself. But there's another one there, just as profound. Engia paradate. It's been translated a number of ways. But the most common is, certainty brings ruin. Now, clearly, this mainly applies to when you're wrong. I mean, why would it bring ruin to be certain if you're right? Be that as it may, the maxim points to a fundamental issue with certainty. And that is, we don't know when we're wrong. Because haven't we all been there? A situation where we were sure... And I mean really sure, so, so sure, deep in our bones, where we would have been ready to bet the house, bet our lives, bet our loved one's life, bet anything, because there was simply no way in the world that we were wrong about this. And then, we were wrong about this. Of course we have. That's the reason why even today we're never totally chill about raising our hand to answer a public question because we're all still traumatized by that one time the teacher asked the whole classroom a question and we knew the answer and we raised our hand and we said it, but we were wrong and everyone laughed and now you're an alcoholic. (laughs) That hurts, man. We still think about it today. And it alerts us to a very worrying truth, that from our own subjective point of view in the moment, being sure that we are right when we're actually wrong, feels exactly the same as being sure that we're right when we actually are right. They're exactly the same feeling. There's no difference there. Let that sink in. Because it means that even if we feel certain of something, we can never really be certain. There are no safe bets. And ignoring this exposes us to failure. Well then, seems like we have a bit of a paradox on our hands. Because without certainties, we feel like we're adrift in an ocean of paralyzing doubt. What do I do next? Who knows? But at the same time, the certainties that rescue us from that can also mislead us. So, what do we do? Right, well, let's uh, wrap this thing up, shall we? Here's where we're at. To summarize, we interact with our internal picture of the world, which is extremely detailed and is based on what we believe is true whether that's coming from our direct experience or from a secondhand source we decide to trust. But we've seen that the sources of all these beliefs are fallible, even when we are completely sure that we are right. Our certainties are vulnerable. And that's a problem, because if any of them is seriously undermined, everything that we've built on these certainties, our identities, our belief systems, our societies, comes crumbling down. So our certainties force us into this defensive stance where our cognitive biases are working overtime to reject contrary facts because, of course, if we accepted these facts, we'd risk destabilizing our whole worldview. Way easier to just ignore it and call it fake news and stick to our certainty and to whichever echo chamber affirms our belief. But I propose an alternative approach. Because it seems to me that what's really destabilizing isn't uncertainty but are clinging to a certainty that can never be attained. So maybe, instead of seeking certainty, we should just get comfortable with uncertainty. Now, you might hear this and think, wait a second, I thought, what? How can I live without certainties? What about the ocean of paralyzing doubt and all that? I mean, wouldn't this just make the whole world unpredictable and unstable? Well, newsflash, the world is unpredictable and unstable. And you're not fixing it by applying your rigid certainty to it any more than you can make a home earthquake-proof just by saying it is. You know what actually makes a building earthquake-proof? Not sturdier materials, but more flexible ones. What we need is flexibility. In our age of pluralism, when we're more likely than ever to encounter beliefs and facts and conceptions of the truth that challenge and shake us, we need that shock absorption. So the materials that our worldviews are made of, in other words, our beliefs, cannot be solid. They must be flexible. Now, what does this mean in practice? First of all, I guess, it means that when it comes to your belief system, keep it simple. Only build on very few core beliefs. Things you've experienced directly, maybe, or where you're the expert, or things that you believe to the very best of your satisfaction have been tested and verified repeatedly. Travel light. All other information, take it, sure, but always with a big question mark attached. Don't bet on it, don't retweet it, don't stake your reputation on it, don't build your values and your identities on it. Be quick to discard it if needed. Be ready to change your mind. And even with those very few fundamental core beliefs, those safe bets, always remember that error isn't just possible. It's ubiquitous. We will always fall short of the standard of truth. Now, this doesn't mean that the truth doesn't matter or that we shouldn't care about the truth. All it means is realizing that we must look for the truth. We might even find the truth, but we can never be sure that we've found the truth. In the words of Erasmus, aim to be someone who cares about the truth, but who doesn't make a final decision about what is true and who doesn't defend their opinion to the death, but rather takes as probable what others take as certain. Because in the quest for knowledge, when you give up certainty, you gain something far more valuable, curiosity. Hey folks, thank you for sticking with me until the end of this episode, and before you run off, please just stick with me an extra minute so I can tell you how you can help me rescue me from the misery of anonymity, give me momentary respite from the frustration of my daily existence, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you can. It doesn't have to be a good review, as long as it is a review. It does something, apparently. I'm not sure what. I'm very bad with all technological and technical things, as you can probably hear from the sound quality of this bloody podcast. Anyway, also follow me everywhere, at wise hypocrite. The best place to follow me, frankly, is Instagram, because I actually use it. But, you know, I'm other places too. Of course, Clubhouse. I'm always on Clubhouse, because it's where I go to talk to people and work through my ideas. The same ideas you listen to here on the Final Polished podcast. Another good way to support the podcast is by becoming a patron. That way, it's not just that you'll help me keep this more frequent, but more importantly, you'll help me keep it free, which is the main thing. I want the podcast to always be accessible to everyone, no matter what their financial situation or their degree of education. So that is really helpful. And in exchange for that, as a thank you for your support, you get access to tons of bonus content, mainly my conversations on Clubhouse. Not just me rambling at strangers about whatever question is occupying my mind so that it arrives on this podcast in a slightly more polished form, but also interviews with kind of important people, scientists, philosophers, sociologists, people who are dealing with the big questions that I like to engage in on Wise Hypocrite. Most recently, I spoke to Professor Richard Bett, a philosopher and classicist who wrote a book recently on ancient skepticism called How to Keep an Open Mind. In that conversation, we talk about ancient skepticism, its parallels with modern types of thinking, its applications today, and differences and similarities with other ancient schools of thought like Stoicism, Epicureanism, etc. So if you're a patron, you can pop over to the special feed and you will get that content right now. Anyway, thanks again for listening and until next time when we will finally start to venture into the realm of morality. Arrivederci.